are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. Like most people, I have a morning routine one which generally consists of reading through the news while having a cup of tea before work. Before I get down to the business of the day, I always make sure to check the popular Reddit forum, Am I the Asshole? Am I the Asshole consists of people explaining behaviours, incidents and interactions that have left them wondering if they were indeed in the wrong or if they have behaved in a way that means they can hold their head high. It is the modern-day equivalent of gladiators in the Circus Maximus asking the crowd thirsty for blood if they should execute their foe or give them mercy. Some of it is the normal detritus of life. Fallings out over inheritance, home ownership, generally finance. But there is a disturbing subgenre of people demanding to be in delivery rooms while women they are in no way close to go through possibly the most traumatic moments of their lives. The stories are a mix of entertaining, horrifying, eye-popping and mundane. It's the salacious entertainment of the tabloids, but without the middle people of journalism. However, every so often, one post comes along where someone's insistence on a certain path truly boggles the mind. Enter the husband and his family who insisted that his unborn son would be called Ted Bundy. His grandfather, who had recently died, was called Theodore. And at this point, it is a touching tribute, if it wasn't for their surname. While their surname is not spelt B-U-N-D-Y, it is most definitely pronounced Bundy. His wife was insisting that, of course, you cannot let your child share a name with a well-known serial killer, while her in-laws could not understand why she did not want to honour her husband's late grandfather. The internet, a place which can be dubious at best when soliciting the opinion of strangers, almost at one had this woman's back. For all its faults, it could see that this is only one step down from calling your child Adolf, and especially more so if your second name is already Hitler. Which leaves one to wonder, with the plethora of serial killers out there, why would one not flinch at calling your child Donald Gaskins, who confessed to over 100 murders, or John Robison, who has 11 dead or murdered women linked to him? Yet Ted Bundy, Ed Gein and Dennis Rader are likely to be names that will never turn up at a baptism in our lives, if the parents have any sense. So why is it that when we have no end of serial killers, mass murderers, psychopaths and narcissists, some stand out more than others? Why especially does Ted Bundy continue to fascinate when those with larger body counts fade into obscurity? Bundy, even while alive, oscillated between infamy and fame. 
infamy for those who knew the whole depravity of his actions, and fame for those who largely did not know the true extent of what he did. The sensibilities of reporting, meaning it was unlikely any news editor would allow details of his necrophilia, where he revisited the bodies of his victims to have sex until they decomposed too much for him to continue through the televisions and newspapers which graced the family homes of America and further afield where his crimes were reported. Still, one would assume that even without the corpse fucking, the brutal murders he committed would be enough to turn people off. However, in all cultures, there has been a romantic attraction to the lovable criminal, the twinkle-eyed rogue, starting with Robin Hood stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Lossier, the French murderer turned celebrity who inspired crime and punishment, covered in our 38th episode, The Sinner and the Saint, all the way up to popular culture with The Gentleman Thief and 80s British TV stalwart Diamond in the Rough, Lovejoy. Bundy sways close to this criminal archetype with his escape from trial by jumping out of the courtroom window and then later managed to escape a second time from jail. The audacity of the move was certainly something. Combine the lovable rogue with a culture that was generally given to the objectification of attractive young women, Bundy's preferred victim, and Bundy's good looks, education and superficial charm was enough to tip some people away from seeing him as a fundamentally and unredeemably depraved personality into the lure of dangerous bad boy territory, most likely wrapped up in fantasies of being able to be the one woman who could love him straight. As many other commentators have pinpointed Bundy's good looks are a major part of this story. It is not news that we generally prefer to look at good-looking people, although what each culture and era defines as good-looking can differ greatly. To believe that the phenomenon of people still finding Bundy attractive, even a magnetic draw, is purely down to his looks is to find the quickest answer possible without fully interrogating what is going on. In Sheila Eisenberg's book, Women Who Love, Men Who Kill, which is not easy to get hold of, she explores the phenomenon of women who fall for killers. We're not talking about women who fall in love and then discover the object of their affection as a killer, who for years may have been spun a tale and actively deceived and used, although there will always be someone who believes that such women must have known. Instead, we are talking about women who actively seek out those who have been arrested, tried and jailed for murder. Prisoners who have married while in jail include Charles Bronson, Levi Belfield, Richard Ramirez, Susan Atkins and Tex Watson, both members of the Manson family, but not with each other. And the list goes on and on. Bundy himself married during his Florida trial and conceived a child in jail. Reading Eisenberg's book, she comes to the simple conclusion that often the women who are pursuing a relationship with men who have killed are in need of control. After all, 
what could give a woman more control than a man being physically held in place by the whole apparatus of the state in which they live? Many women in the outside world who are living with men who are violent, aggressive or domineering have much greater problems in leaving. However, those who pursue partnerships with prisoners are able to live their life as they please and the state keeps them safe while they can still enjoy the slight thrill of the danger, perhaps enjoying the attention that our partner's notoriety gives them and any criticism means they can fulfil the role of victim in a judgmental and persecutory society. While the partner on the outside, especially one who appears ordinary and stable, can be a boon for those inside. It truly is a codependent relationship. Codependent women who need to be needed often have a deep desire to be seen as a rescuer. Where can they get that more than in men who are close to transgressing what it means to be human? Men who would be called brutes, savages, beasts, monsters and evil before psychology graced us with more clinical terms. Men who are the closest to the wild man trope, birthed first in the Epic of Gilgamesh in 2100 BCE. A trope that runs through multiple cultures and societies, last notably seen in popular culture when Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz set eyes on each other for the first time in the remake of The Mummy. Wild but handsome Fraser in an Egyptian jail for theft, Weiss, a sheltered and unknowingly beautiful librarian in search of treasure. It is undeniable that what is attractive in Fraser here is not just his looks, but the energy, uncontrolled, uncontrollable, that he exudes. We all desire someone who can love us with intensity, not all the time as it's not practical, but especially in the bedroom, passion, or at least the potential for passion, is an incredible aphrodisiac. But passion is an unrestricted thing that can dangerously spill out of its confines, and women for centuries have been held responsible for retaining it. Where is the wild man at his most tame? The least dangerous? Where the would-be rescuer can get close enough without being injured? In jail. I have been mulling over not just who Bundy was, but what Bundy means, both when he was alive and also now he is dead. Of course, it's much easier to pin meaning on dead people as they do not have a voice to object. When it comes to murders of Bundy's calibre, there are few former friends or family members who would necessarily stick their heads above the parapet to correct misconceptions or inconsistencies. So we, myself included, are free to use them as vessels to make whatever points we want, whether that is about the evils of pornography or, as I'm about to do, about hidden disability. Bundy did not have a disability in the way that most people generally tend to think of it. Most people see disability only through a fractured and largely scratched lens. Many think only of obvious physical disability, which is consistent on a daily basis, visible, and is attached to a person who can serve either as a vessel for their pity and therefore a sense of superiority, 
or as an inspiration, which is often the flip side of a lack of empathy. After all, if those Paralympians can win gold, why the hell can't you do whatever it is they expect you to? Society leaves a very narrow path for those with disability to follow. And as someone with disabilities who presents as non-disabled, I have regularly in education and most often in the workplace found myself battered against the tough walls that line each side of that path. Some of my experience happened with the absolute knowledge of line managers and seniors who knew about my disability, but decided to either disregard their duties to it or patronisingly make decisions about it for me. Even in workplaces where I've been assured that they value diversity, where they publicly make declarations on behalf of disabled people, where I was told I would be supported, I found myself resented, purposely isolated, ignored, and on the receiving end of openly offensive comments and questions because of my disability. It is my experience that the more an employer is at pains to tell you how great they are of disability, the more irrationally irritated they will be when they discover your disability might need some adjustments from them or is a slight inconvenience. While I do not believe in having a misery Olympics, disability is often the most ignored and overlooked of the minority statuses, especially if your disability is not an obvious one which others can make hollow pronouncements and easy gestures which ensure their egos have been soothed and propped up nicely. All of which will leave you with the question, what does this have to do with Bundy? When still alive, he managed to get a stay of execution with a diagnosis of what was called manic depressive at the time, but is now called bipolar. He reported to the diagnosing psychiatrist that he heard voices that told him things about women. However, there is some doubt around Bundy's self-reported symptoms, including his defence that pornography made him do it due to his highly manipulative nature. The pornography bid was suspected by some as a last-ditch attempt to save himself by appealing to one of the obsessions of the Christian right in America. One assumes he thought by evoking the evils of pornography, he would somehow get the death penalty removed. In a truly terrible parallel universe, he could become a spokesperson, a motivational speaker, a leader in the crusade against porn. Other professionals have suggested that Bundy was probably a psychopath, a narcissist or a sadist, possibly a mix of all three. Of course, it is much more difficult to diagnose someone when they are dead and you cannot interview them. But Kentucky University has done just that using historical resources and material from the time. It is an interesting paper for anyone who has an interest in psychology as it shows the flaws of the current diagnosis Bible, the DSM, which at the point of the paper was in its fourth iteration. How we classify people like Bundy is important, especially in the realms of treatment, given that personality disorders are notoriously hard to treat successfully and have a significant negative impact on the lives of those who have them and those who are around them. What does my neurodiversity have to do with psychopathy and murder? 
disability under the 2010 Equality Act that governs services and employment in the UK, although not Northern Ireland, defines disability as long-term, substantial and interferes with day-to-day activities. There is, of course, reams of guidance and case law that goes along with the Act and its interpretation. And it may be that in the future cases will come up, which may again nudge these definitions in different directions. The law is a living, breathing thing after all. Although taking a case to tribunal has been made purposely difficult, and given that many who have good cases are also dealing with the minority stress of their existence alongside a tribunal case, most who need tribunals are denied them meaning law in the UK is less a living, breathing thing and more an asthmatic being denied an inhaler. However, not all disabilities are treated the same. Someone with a mild depression might need a period of sick leave to help recover with a short period of medication rather than disability status. And as anyone who has lived in the UK under Tory rule can attest, the practices of how disability is assessed by often untrained individuals holds as much subtlety and nuance as a slap in the face and about as much sting. While as a society we are becoming better in time in talking about mental health, we still often shy away from discussing the most difficult diagnoses, those that are considered severe and enduring, which includes the personality disorders that many serial killers appear to suffer from. Traditionally, criminal insanity does not tend to embrace those with personality disorder, as those who are criminally insane have to be unaware that the crime they are committing is wrong. Think the mum with postpartum psychosis, who believes there are people genuinely coming to harm her baby, and the only way to save them is to kill the child herself. It is a tragic, terrible situation, but not one where the mother would think of harming their child had they not been suffering from a severe break with reality. People with personality disorders who commit crimes generally know what they are doing is wrong. They may either be in a place where they don't care or think they won't be found out. Therefore, they do not meet the threshold for criminal insanity. They do not believe that what they are doing is somehow right. The only thing that can be done given the circumstances, they know they are wrong. They just don't care. Definitions, though, are in themselves arbitrary. How we define gender is changing and evolving as our right. One would think age is fairly fixed, but there are cultures, mainly in East Asia, where you're considered one at birth. When I was younger, someone in their 60s would be considered old, that their life was almost over. Now people in their 60s are going to university for the first time and taking part in triathlons. When I was in Thailand with a partner, we were on a boat trip, and he asked one of the locals what type of fish that had just been reeled in was called. He pointed at it and asked, what's that called? Fish, was the reply. He tried later asking the name of a mountain. He pointed at it. What's that called? He asked. Mountain? Came the baffled reply. I enjoy thinking this man went home laughing that he met a guy who didn't know what a mountain or a fish was called, coming from famously flat and seafood poor Scotland.
in the West in particularly, we have a need to categorise and name things from rocks to mammals to individual human characteristics as a way of helping us make sense of the world. I suspect bubbling under our constant categorization, there may be a link between naming and possession, particularly when it comes to colonialism. Some of the things we name seem so solid. We are so sure of them. So pervasive are some of our definitions like gender, age, etc., that we begin to feel that they are solid and set in stone. Whereas a look at different ways of living across the globe and throughout history shows us that all is flexible and a movable feast. Reading through the UK Equality Act 2010 and its accompanying guidance, a personality disorder is indeed considered a legal disability and eligible for the treatment and consideration those with disabilities get which is, from mine and others' experience, pretty thin on the ground and piss poor. What this does mean, though, is that if academics at Kentucky are indeed right, and Bundy could be diagnosed with a bouquet of personality disorders, with antisocial, narcissistic, schizoid and borderline, all suspected as playing a part, he may have been more than a serial killer and necrophile, but also a profoundly disabled person. This will be a challenging statement for many, especially for those who secretly in their heart of hearts consider disability something to pity people for rather than embrace as just another facet of a whole person. However, it is undeniably true that those who are unable to stop murdering others are having a substantial and long-term negative effect on their ability to do normal day-to-day things. So, if Bundy is indeed disabled, how does this relate to my hidden disabilities? The adoration of young women at Zac Efron's recent investiture as a Bundy avatar, not seeing the personality disorder that leads to the murder, mutilation and necrophilia because they are blinded by Efron's chiseled jaw and brow, almost so perfect as to be bland, was apparent in a whole new generation of people not previously exposed to the Bundy story. It is reminiscent, at least for me, of my employer's inability to see past my articulate nature and master's degrees to understand that my neurodiversity is indeed a real thing that will blind me to what appears obvious to others. It's why some of them have reared up like a horse that's just seen a snake when I've asked for reasonable adjustments or decided to take it personally when I've pointed out discrimination. Is there any difference between their inability to understand I am disabled because I present as so middle class and educated and those who find it difficult to see that a man can do the most terrible things to another person and yet also be very good looking and educated? It is interesting to note that often when a woman is beautiful, or should that be sexually attractive because they're not the same thing, it makes it more believable that she can be inherently bad. Women's criminal templates include the vixen, the black widow and the femme fatale, 
all of whom use their looks, sex appeal and charm to lure innocent victims into whatever mendacious web they are about to weave. Looking at it this way, people's inability to understand my disability and others' inability to conceptualise that a good-looking person can be so depraved are both two sides of the same superficial coin. It is the inability to acknowledge where we lack understanding of depth and that we make knee-jerk superficial judgments of others that not only blights the easy movement of disabled people through the abled people's world, but also stops people from seeing the very real danger that is present in others. And it is a blindness that can come at a terrible cost. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.